The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. I want to get into the word here and I want to tie what I shared with you uh, earlier just concerning that excitement about hearing the body. I mentioned I'm weird, okay? So we're, we're, like I said, we're past that. I remember being in worship services that were, uh, you really felt God doing something. You felt him doing something great, you know, whether it was just you or whether it was the whole people group. I mean, there were moments in worship services that have affected and, and transformed my life. There are moments in worship services that transform and define entire congregations. There are moments in worship services that uh, uh, transform and define entire nations. I mean, you look at King Solomon. He dedicates the temple. That's a worship service. And the glory of God, appear, I mean, that's kind of a big deal, right? You think that doesn't put the wind in, in the sails of a nation to think, hey, I think we're onto something here. You know, we just saw the glory of God. That's kind of a thing, right? I mean, these are moments that took place in worship services that are, are absolutely defining. I remember being a part of a worship service. It was very early in the years of this congregation. The congregation was located downtown. Uh, we used to set up and tear down in the, in the, in the uh, Civic Center, excuse me, and then had a, a storefront facility uh, that we had renovated and, and worshiped in. And I remember being in services, and, and I kid you not, this is going to sound weird, but I heard instruments in the music that, that weren't in the room. Now, this was before you had Jared's iPad, right? Where you can, you know, he's pulled some one-man band stuff here that's pretty awesome. Like, there's no denying it. It's really, and, and if you've ever tried that before, it's not easy. It's, it's an amazing skill. But I remember being a part of the worship team, and we were playing, and all of a sudden, in the song, there were horns, and there wasn't a horn player on the platform. And I mean, it, it, was, it was pretty amazing. And afterward, you know, you're asking, like, hey, did you guys hear that? And the worship team's like, yeah, I heard that. What was that? I don't know. You know what? And you walk away, and you just think, I think we just participated with heaven. I think there were, it was heavenly a participation in our worship set, or you could say that our worship set participated in heavenly worship. I mean, things happen in praise and worship, and great things, wonderful things. And like I said before, we're going to see that in the message here. I want to get through a, a couple of things. Uh, here's, here's some things you're going to find. One, we're going to find uh, the, the reason for the gospel, what God's doing in the gospel. Another thing that we're going to find is a, a couple of questions that we need to be asking when we face challenges. Uh, there's a couple of questions that need to be asked. And then I want to look at a few things that God gives us. So we've talked about this concept often, and I will continue to talk about it often. I, I believe that addressing and dealing with fear and anxiety is, is a massive part of the Scripture. So when we pull from these passages of Scripture, some of them are going to sound very familiar because we've used them in the past, but I want to make some strategic points for our present. Uh, I mentioned that we're going to find the point of the gospel. I want to give that to you out of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1. It begins in, in verse 68, if I remember right. But what you see here is something that in some church circles and denominations is known as the Benedictus. I mean, there's a blessing involved here. It's given by the father of John the Baptist, who's a very famous religious leader at the time. And it's a big deal because he's not been able to speak for a season 
And God opened up his mouth and, and gave him back his speech, and he spoke these words, really powerful thing. And he speaks these words, and I want to give you this as the, the point of the gospel. He's talking about what God's doing in the coming of Jesus. Beginning in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He's visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us, just as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all of those who hate us. This is to show mercy toward our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. He goes on to say that God has sworn that he would grant unto us that being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, we might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness all of our days. It's, it's kind of a lot of reading there, but I want to emphasize that last line as the point. I mean, all of this accomplishing redemption, all of this horn of salvation, all of this that is Jesus. Jesus has been sent into the world. The light has come into the world. The time has come for our Messiah to be revealed and to carry out his messianic work. All of this is to accomplish this last line. That we, being delivered from our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. I want to look at that last line, and I want to break it down for a moment. I mean, it's the kind of thing that when we read it, we ought to examine it in the Scripture. Look at the words. That we, being delivered from our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. I can take that one line there, and I can personally just see a few things really quickly without having to go too deep. One, that God's going to deliver me from my enemies. That's something that God does, and it's not just because he just gets a kick out of it, even though I'm sure he does. He loves you, and he loves to rescue you. You're his beloved. But that this deliverance is for a purpose, so that we can be without fear. When I know that God will deliver me from my enemies, I don't need to be afraid of my enemies, right? God will deliver me. So no matter how big and bad, no matter how armed, no matter uh, what their reputation is, as long as I know that God will deliver me, why would I ever be afraid of them? No matter what slander, no matter what gossip, no matter what evil spews from their mouths or what their reputation is in their past or what their threats are for the present or the future, if I know God will deliver me, there's no reason to be afraid. So he's going to deliver us so that we won't be afraid so that we can then serve him in holiness and in righteousness. So I look at that and I realize this, that the, the holiness and righteousness that I'm called to is the result of living a life without fear, and living a life without fear is the result of God's deliverance. And I like to look at things in, in linear form like that, to see that the, the end game, the goal of the gospel in my life is for me to serve God in holiness and in righteousness. Well, in order for me to serve God in holiness and righteousness, God is going to eliminate fear from my life. It's fear that brings compromise. It's fear that brings a, 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 a challenge to making decisions that are righteous and decisions that are holy. It's fear that opens up the door for us to be corrupt. So if the end goal is to be holy and righteous, serving God, fear's got to go. And the way God gets rid of fear in my life is through deliverance. 
So this is an interesting thing, right? When you put that in linear form, it's, it's pretty entertaining, at least, just to look at. It can also be encouraging to see that, wow, this is something that God's doing. In order to bring me to a life of holiness and righteousness, he's getting fear out of my life, and he's doing that by delivering me. Now, let me throw something in there that you have to, to catch by reading between the lines. If God's end goal is to get you to a place of, of, of absolute holiness and righteousness, then your actions and your thinking, make no mistake, you're never a better Christian than when you when, are the moment you're born again. Everything in mercy and in grace and the blood of Jesus and in forgiveness is absolute. But his continued work in the renewal of your mind, protecting you from being swept away by fear and anxiety, is a work that God's doing here now in the present. And that's a work that we need to be aware of so that we can cooperate with that work and not resist that work. So getting to a place of holiness and righteousness is going to mean getting rid of fear, which is going to mean being delivered from my enemies. Now, as I read between the lines, what I realize is for that to work, I'm going to have to need help. I'm going to have to be in a position where I need deliverance or else this formula doesn't work at all. I'm going to have to be put in positions where, where there is an enemy and that enemy is waging war against me and that enemy is speaking words of slander and that enemy is spewing words of venom. Whether that enemy is, is in your head or whether that enemy is tangible in this world, that enemy must exist for God to bring to pass the point of the gospel. My deliverance to be free from fear, to then live an uncompromised life walking in the holiness that is introduced into my life through the blood of Jesus. I want to give you a passage of scripture here concerning uh, God and what he's doing in our lives through Jesus out of the Psalms. Psalm 20, 27, verse 1. It's a favorite passage of mine out of the Psalms. Uh, it was put to music. It's probably been put to music many times, but when I was a child, we would sing this song in church. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I think it's a pretty amazing thing to consider that as we examine salvation, the salvation of God coming into our life, the result is the freedom of fear. I mean, based on, on our understanding of things today and, and, and the goal of churches with, with evangelism and things like that, you would basically see a, a doctrine that God saves me and so my sins are forgiven. But the scripture is, is giving us a doctrine that God has, he saves us so we don't have to be afraid. And when we begin to see fear lifted from our lives, we begin to see a lifestyle that is more reflective of what the Bible describes as a Christian walk, an uncompromising walk, one that is devoted to, to a lifestyle that's holy and righteous, embracing the things that God loves and rejecting the things that he hates. Getting fear out of our lives is extremely important. I want to give you a passage of scripture here that we've visited in the past. I want to visit it again today because I want to make a, a, a specific statement about two questions that are asked. I mentioned before that we were going to find two questions that we need to ask when we're afraid. We'll find them here. It's in the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. So what you need to understand as we go into to reading this passage is that you have a group of believers. It's the disciples. It might as well be you and me standing there. 
We have witnessed great things, powerful church services where people have been healed and delivered and miracles have happened. We, we've listened to the, the powerful teaching of, of, of Jesus Christ, and now Jesus has said, let's take this and let's go over there. Jesus has given the instruction to continue doing the work of God in a different location. Now in verse 35, it says, on that day when evening came, Jesus said to them, let's go to the other side. They're going to go have the same uh, ministry just on the other side of the body of water. And leaving the crowd, they took Jesus along with them in the boat, just as he was. And there were other boats with them. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and waves were breaking over the boat, so that much of the boat was filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And when they woke Jesus up, they, were, they said, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. So I want to stop there because I want to make sure that we catch what's gone on. You have a, a, a people group that have seen the wonderful power of God. God gives them instruction to go and continue this work. And as they get into the boat and as they begin to move, a great storm uh, breaks out. The boat begins to fill up with water. And then the, the people in the boat, all except for Jesus, begin to freak out. And as they're freaking out, they're, they're, they begin to, to be compromised. I mean, they know that God loves them. They know that God cares about them. But look at their question. Don't you care? That's their question. Don't you care about me? That's not sound thinking. Something about this, this point of anxiety or this point of fear has compromised their thinking. It's compromised their perspective of who God is. If we allow fear to, to enter into our lives, it will introduce compromise. It'll compromise how we view God. It'll compromise how we view each other. It'll compromise how we view the work that God's done in our lives, and it will lead to negative results. So when Jesus responds to their, their compromised question, don't you care about us? Don't you care that we're dying? He gets up and he says, hush, be still. The wind dies down. The sea becomes calm. And then Jesus turns to those, the disciples, like I said, could be you, could be me, and asks these two questions. And I think these are two questions we need to keep in our back pocket for when we deal with, with anxious moments or moments where we could be afraid. He asks these two questions. Now, the way that my New American Standard translates it, it reads like this. Why are you afraid? That would be question number one. And then question number two. How is it that you have no faith? Question one, why are you afraid? Question two, how is it that you have no faith? I want to share something with you about these questions. It was something that, that I found to be, it was new to me. And I thought that's really worth sharing because if we don't catch this, I think we could, could, with good intentions, take off on a path and it might be the wrong path. And, and even if you have good intentions, if you're on the wrong path, you're not going to get where you want to go. So I wanted, to, I wanted to look at the word why. Why are you afraid? That's a very important question. Why are you afraid? And I want to offer this to you. That, that with, with good intention, it's been translated why, just because that's kind of how we speak. But why are you afraid is, in my opinion, as of this morning, by the way, not a good interpretation, not a good translation. I want to offer you my thoughts on that. You look up the word that's translated why, and here's what it literally means. 
What? Which? Who? What, which, who? Who, which, what? Which, what, who? Whatever order you want to put them in. What, which, who? You know what word's not in there? Why? So I have no problem with the translation, you know, why are you afraid? Because I think that's a real casual way to put it. But it's an altogether different question if Jesus says, what are you afraid of? He says, which thing are you afraid of? Or, or who are you afraid of? Totally different question than why are you afraid? I mean, what I'm afraid of, and this is just a silly example, could be dogs. Why I'm afraid could be, well, I got bit when I was a kid, right? Why and what are completely different questions. And if I read this and I apply the lessons that I see in my life based on why I'm afraid, I might never deal with what I'm afraid of. I may never face the what or the which or the who, but I'll sit in my corner and wrestle with the why. So I wanted to offer this again this morning because I, this, it's important to me that we, we, we examine the Scripture as to what God's doing in our life to purge our, our lives of fear and anxiety that we can stand firm as the, the, the power-filled, blood-bought believers that we are. And when I add the, the, the word what or, or, or who or which rather than why, I get a whole different question here. What are you afraid of? Who are you afraid of? Which thing are you afraid of? And when I get to that, I, I can focus on the actual issue. And, and then the next question, the next question is important as well. How is it that you have no faith? The word how there is a great translation. But I want to offer to you the, the other definition that goes along with the word how. The other definition would be in what way. That's, a, that's another definition for the word just how, in what way. I mean, if you, it's getting close to lunch, you're probably getting hungry, so let's talk about food. I mean, if you ate a piece of chicken and it was delicious and you asked the cook, how did you cook this? You could also say, in what way did you cook this, right? How or in what way? So whichever one makes more sense to you is, is fine by me. How is it that you have no faith? Or in what way is it that you have no faith? What's gone on that you have no faith? What, what, what is the challenge there with faith? I want to acknowledge something here that I think is worth acknowledging. That when Jesus is, is addressing fear and anxiety in the life of the disciple, he doesn't contrast it with courage or bravery. I mean, when he asks the question, what, who, or which, right? Not why, but what, who, or which. When he asks, what are you afraid of, and how is it you don't have any faith? He doesn't say, what are you afraid of, and how is it you don't have any courage? He doesn't say, what are you afraid of, and how is it that you're not brave enough to handle that? But rather, when he's responding to or addressing fear, he responds to and addresses that issue with faith. That's a really important thing for me. I mean, I think that we ought to acknowledge that and begin to examine what faith is so that we can uh, walk in the faith that we've been called to walk in. Now, I want to offer this to you very quickly. We're going to run out of time. And I want to move very fast. But all fear is an issue of worth. All fear is an issue of worth. Now, you can say, well, that might be your opinion, and, and it is my opinion. But I want to show you in the Scripture, when Jesus deals with fear or anxiety, he, he responds to it in a very interesting way. And it's out of Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. 
Matthew 10, I want to begin in verse 29. Jesus is talking and he's responding to people's cares and concerns. You know, how are we going to make it? How are we going to survive? Uh, some of these were financial. Some of these were lifestyle. Some of these concerns might seem small, but Jesus was addressing the heart of the matter or the principle. And he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's knowledge. But the very hairs on your head are numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. It's an interesting line there. Do not fear because you're more valuable. That tells me fear is a worth issue, an issue of worth. Don't be afraid because you have value. You don't have to be afraid because you're worth so much to God. It's interesting to me, it explains to me why there's such an attempt in this world, whether it's satanic or demonic or, or carnal, to bring fear into my life. Because the more fear enters into my life, the, the lower my, my worth is in my own eyes. It's a worth issue. I'll give you a passage of scripture here out of Revelation because I think it's important for us to know this. It's important to know your worth. I mean, what do you think you're worth? I recently was doing some banking and, and had to fill out an asset sheet. And, and that asset sheet was revealing to the banker what, what this world or what the bank would see is my worth. And I got news for you, it, it, it's not my worth. That's not my worth. I mean, how do you define worth? Let me tell you how, how I would define worth. When I was a, a kid, I collected baseball cards and things like that. My brother did it. He was older than me. So, you know, monkey see, monkey do. And, and I got into that as well. And we began to, to pool up our money. And I remember we would take something that we would save up for and buy. And I remember taking it and showing my dad and saying, this is worth $40. And he told me something. He just said something. And, and it's really a, a wise statement. He said, son, that's only worth what someone will pay for it. That's true. I mean, you could say something's worth a billion dollars, and if someone will only give, you know, a handful of pennies for it, that's all it's worth. It doesn't matter what it says on the price tag. So what he said was, was really accurate. Uh, that's only worth what someone will pay for it. So pulling from, from that little bit of wisdom, let me read a passage of Scripture to you. Revelation 5, verse 9. It speaks of Jesus and his worth, right? Worthy or worthy, but worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and you purchased, that is a transaction, you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So if something is only worth what someone will pay for it, your worth is the blood of Jesus. That's the price that was paid for you. You are worth the blood of Jesus. Now, here's a, a, an amazing thing about that. Your value has been set. It has been established. Your worth is, is, is absolute and will not change. You have been purchased with the blood of Jesus. So, have you ever noticed, like we were talking about earlier, there's power in, in these celebration uh, services and praise and worship when we're coming together and we're singing I mean, oftentimes I've, I've thought, why is that? You know, does God, is God just really insecure? And so he only makes himself known when we're talking about him? You know, that, you know that's no, not true. That's not the case, right? 
Why is it that I would feel different when I'm singing praises and when I'm giving thanks? Why is it that all of a sudden my problems would seem smaller and, and Jesus would seem so much bigger when I'm celebrating in praise and in worship? I want to just offer this to you. You know, knowing that my price has been set, that I'm worth the blood of Jesus, that I'm worth the life of Jesus Christ, I want to offer this thought to, to you. Your life being worth the blood of Jesus, your life being worth the life of Jesus Christ would mean the more he's worthy, the more you're worth. The more he's worthy, the more you're worth. I mean, I'll say that. I'll, I'll, I'll just shout that when I'm driving sometimes. The more he's worthy, the more I'm worth. There's a reason why the devil hates praise and worship. There's a reason why... Before I was a believer, my brother got born again and we worked together and I'd jump in his truck and he would have the latest, greatest Christian music on his, and I hated it. I just, first thing I'd do is shut off his radio. He'd say, my truck, my music, and he'd turn it right back on and I would just fume. I couldn't relate to it. But now I understand the declaration of the worth of Jesus. Do you realize for eternity it will be understood, worthy is the Lamb. He has worth. Praise and worship will, will celebrate for all eternity that Jesus is worthy. And the more he's worthy, the more you're worth. No wonder I feel different when I join with heaven and declare the worth of God. No wonder I feel different when I join with heaven and declare the worth of our King Jesus. No wonder I feel different when I join with heaven and I sing praises that are uplifting, that declare his goodness and his power and his authority. The more he's worthy, the more I'm worth. That's the price that was paid for me. It's an amazing thing to consider. We're going to run out of time before we can get through all of this, but I want to get to, to a point. I mentioned before that there's some things that God has given to us. And I want to offer these things to you because I think these things are important for us to have as we continue to advance in, in the kingdom of God together and, and individually in our own households. God's given us a few things in order to, to walk in the freedom from anxiety and fear. I'll give you a passage of scripture out of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7. It says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. But power, love, and soundness of mind. Some of your translations may say self-discipline. Some may say soundness of mind. But I look at this passage of Scripture and it's revealing to me. Uh, it's revealing a number of things. One that fears a spirit. Right? God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Two, that that, that spirit of fear hasn't come from God. It, it's from an outside source. Outside situation, outside circumstance. And that in response to this outside influence that's attempting to bring compromise into our lives, God has given us three things to deal with it. These are three things that I want to add to, to my prayer life. I want to add these things to my prayer life. Not in the sense of God, please give me, but if God's given me these things, I want to be grateful for them and God, please let me walk in. Let me walk in power and let me walk in your love and let me walk in your soundness of mind that I wouldn't take the things that you've given me and leave them on the shelf, but let me use them every moment of my life 
for the purpose that you have blessed me with them to be used for. I want to walk in such a way that fear and anxiety has no room to introduce compromise into my life. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us power, love, and soundness of mind. I'll give you a passage of scripture referring to power. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. Jesus said to his disciples, again, that's me and you today, I've given you power. Power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. It's a pretty great promise. And then love. John wrote that God is love and he wrote in 1 John 4, 18 that the, the, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And then as it comes to the soundness of mind, the way that we think, 1 Corinthians 2.16 promises us that by this marvelous work that God's done, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Jesus Christ. Not just that we have access to Jesus Christ as a counselor, which we do, or as a, a, an individual that we can draw advice and direction from, but our mind is being renewed and transformed. That's the promise that we have in the Word, that as the, our minds are transformed, we look less and less like the world and more and more like Jesus. Don't be conformed to this world. Rather, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So as we deal with things and we understand what God's doing in the gospel. The call for us to live our lives in holiness and in righteousness is going to bring us uh, to the place where God's purging uh, from fear from our lives, bringing us to the point where living in holiness and in righteousness is an actual possibility. And he's going to be purging this fear from our lives by bringing deliverance into situations that are obviously uncomfortable or else you wouldn't need deliverance in the first place. So I want to offer this to you as a thought. I mean, when you face things, when you deal with things, I'd like for us to not see these things so much as opposition as they are opportunity. Rather than just seeing this is an opposition to what God's doing in my life, I'm now beginning to see, hey, this is what God's doing in my life. I spent much of my early years as a Christian rebuking the devil, and I've had to go back now and apologize to God. Hey, that was you. That wasn't him. God's putting us in positions where we need his deliverance so that his deliverance can work and do its wonderful effect, which is driving fear out from our hearts and minds. The more that I've seen God's deliverance in my life, the less I'm afraid when trial and hardship comes. And the less I'm afraid when trial and hardship comes, the, the less room there is for compromise through trial and hardship so that I can continue to live my life in a way that's pleasing to him, serving him in holiness and in righteousness. So the things that we're so quick to label opposition, I think we ought to begin to see as opportunity. That there's an opportunity here for the deliverance of God to once again establish his love and his affection for my life, my value and my worth in his sight. And in this opportunity, God will do all that he said he will do. He will bring to pass his deliverance. And in the end, my life will be that much more liberated from fear and anxiety. And there will be less room for compromise, more room for holiness and righteousness to prevail in my day-to-day -day thinking, choices, and decisions. 
I personally praise God for this work, that he's doing it in me. I know that he's doing it in you. And as we see the results of this, I'd like for us to be those that don't have this happen behind the scenes, but rather we cooperate with the work of God in our lives, where we see and realize and know that he's giving power, love, and soundness of mind to the point where we express our gratitude and our agreement and our embracing of these wonderful things that he's blessed us with, not only so that we can apply them to our own lives, but so that we, through fellowship, can apply them to one another's lives, being an encouragement, offering up power, love, and soundness of mind to one another, to see to it that fear doesn't introduce the compromise that would keep us from living the way we've been called to live. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. I mentioned to you before that there are elements there that are very similar to things we've discussed in the past, but I want to emphasize the thing that was new and stood out to me, and it's in the questions. The questions that are written there, not why, but what. What are you afraid of? Being able to identify that element that God is obviously dealing with. The what is the issue that has this this ability to inspire anxiety or fear in your life. That is an issue that God's very interested in. He wants to deal with the what. He wants to deal with the who. He wants to deal with the which. That thing that's inspiring that anxiety, that thing that is inspiring that fear, be it a person or a situation or a circumstance, is the very thing that you're facing and dealing with so that God can do a work of deliverance and rid your life of that anxiety. It might be a a person, it could be a family member, it could be a circumstance. There's no telling what it could be. We're all so individual and personal. But I think it's important to ask those questions. What am I afraid of? And understand that the answer to that question doesn't reveal any point of weakness in your life or any point of failure in your life. Rather, it indicates the point of ministry where God's going to work. No matter what it is, no matter who it is, no matter which circumstance it is, it's something God's very interested in. And as he goes to work in that area, fear and anxiety becomes relieved, and we begin to step into that holiness and righteousness in every day of our lives that we've been promised, free from the compromise that results from anxiety. I want to pray and I want to ask God to to do this work in our lives. That we wouldn't simply look for an explanation as to why we're afraid, but we would be aware of what it is that inspires it. And then that we might surrender to God to minister to that what, to minister to that who, so that we won't be compromised in the things that we face and in the things that we deal with. And so that we can be equipped with the power and the love and the soundness of mind that God so richly blessed us with to live out our lives supporting one another. You're welcome to join with me in agreement or simply be in a state of receiving, but I want to pray and ask God by his spirit to do a great work. Father, we bless your name and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, that you are driving fear and anxiety out of our lives. 
We thank you, Father, for every example that you've set before us in your word that we could lean upon, that we could stand, that we could look to. Let it bring inspiration to know that you have revealed these things for a purpose, that you've not changed your love or your affection toward us, and nor will you. And will you cause us to be aware of those things that inspire anxiety? That we wouldn't be so concerned as to why we're afraid, but that we would become aware of what it is that you're working on. If they're relationships, let us surrender to your work in those relationships. That we wouldn't let past hurts and wounds and offenses keep us in a place of anxiety and fear. A place of compromise. If they're circumstances, let those circumstances be surrendered to you. That we would be able to identify what it is that inspires anxiety so that it can be offered over to you. And that we can stand upon your promise to make your provision known to us. We give you thanks, Father. We rejoice in the power and in the love and the soundness of mind that you impart to us in our King Jesus. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for the clarity, the direction, and the discernment that we have by the Holy Ghost. Let every one of our thoughts and actions come into alignment and agreement with the blessings that you've so richly blessed us with. That as we go day to day in our lives, dealing with those circumstances that we would face, that your power, your love, and your sound thinking would prevail in our hearts and minds, and that we might walk free from anxiety and fear. We bless your name and we thank you, Father, for your goodness. We rejoice in your favor. And we give you thanks that you have set our worth, that you would pay our ransom, that you've paid the highest price for us, let it be established in our hearts and minds that we never need to be afraid. We give you thanks and we rejoice in you in the mighty name of Jesus. And all the saints declared, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at Church.